Good evening and welcome to Bird Calls from the Knoll Foundation Studios here at Red River Radio. Tonight's program is made possible in part by the Community Foundation of North Louisiana. To take your calls tonight, we have a phone bank of volunteers. We invite you to call in with your questions about our feathered friends and the avian world at 800-552-8502. I'm Cliff Shackleford, your host of Bird Calls, which has been on the air here at Red River Radio for over 10 years. I'll be introducing our guest in just a bit, and we'll be ready to answer your questions about birds this evening. So let's hear from you by calling us at 800-552-8502. First up, we always recap our conservation tip from the previous month. And, and the conservation tip is just a bit of advice or an idea that you can try to implement at your home and, and in your life. And uh, the, the one we're going to recap is how to find a wildlife biologist in your area. And so in October of 2020, we talked about how to find your nearest game warden, because that's something, you, a number you need to have handy when you have that wildlife emergency and you don't want to get routed through all the different channels when you don't call the right number. So have, have a game warden's number handy for that wildlife emergency. But some people that own rural acreage would like to talk to wildlife biologists who might be able to assist them with land management options. So how they can improve their property to help the plants and animals on their property. So, and that, that wildlife biologists might also be able to put you in touch with other like-minded like landowners who are, who are trying to do things good for wildlife. So, and, and in Texas at least, if you're in a big city like Dallas or Houston, you, we have urban biologists and they can also help you out. So look, look for these folks um, and, and have their number handy when you need it. Um, and another idea is if you're pretty rural um, and you don't, and you're maybe in a state that doesn't have biologists available online, you, you can look for your nearest university or junior college or even high school. Sometimes there's biologists hired at these uh, institutions that might have some interests and knowledge of, about wildlife biology and range management, for example, or they'll know who to put you in touch with. So um, reach out and find the nearest wildlife biologist in your area. It might help you out. Next, we're going to profile the gray catbird. This is a widespread and familiar species. The bird is called a catbird for its meow-like call note that we'll listen to here. Meow. Meow. Gotta have a little imagination. It sounds a little bit like a kitty cat, doesn't it? So that's where he gets the name Catbird. The song of the Catbird is a rich mix of squeaks, warbles, and notes that they imitate from other birds around them. Let's listen to the song of the Gray Catbird. Big 
busy little songbird there. This species is a mimic and can imitate sounds it hears like its close cousin the mockingbird, yet the catbird only gives single notes of mimicry at a time while the mockingbird usually does so in triplicate. If you've heard a catbird's meow but have never seen one, it's because they often prefer to skulk in thickets and brushy areas. They'll sometimes pop out on the edge of a thicket to forage or sing, including in urban and suburban areas. And this is when you can get a peek at one when they're popping out. The catbird is slightly smaller than the mockingbird and is a dark, solid gray overall with a black cap and a rusty brown undertail area. The sexes look alike. The catbird breeds in over 45 states in the U.S. plus the southern quarter of Canada. It's absent from the desert southwest and the Pacific coast, including all of California. Catbirds are migratory and retreat to the tropics for the winter, but some individuals are year-round in parts of the Gulf Coast states and Atlantic Coast states. In my area, it's a treat to find one in wintertime. Catbirds eat a variety of food, especially fruits and insects. To see a photo of a gray catbird snapped by James Childress, please visit the Bird Calls page at redriverradio.org. Okay, I'm excited to introduce our guest. He is sitting here in the studio with me, uh, Mr. Clay Taylor with Swarovski Optic. He's been an employee um, with Swarovski Optic for 24 years. He's the naturalist market manager, which basically means he's the uh, expert birder for the optics industry at Swarovski Optic. I've known Clay for about 20, 21 years, and I'm excited to have him come in here and explain optics, binoculars, and scopes. We're going to talk about that today, and remember to call in with your questions about optics, and that number again is 800-552-8502. So, Clay, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. This is going to be a lot of fun. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I can't believe we've known each other for over two decades. How about that? Yeah, great Texas birding classic brought us together. That's true. That's true. Birding events bring a lot of good people together. All right, so tell us a little bit about yourself, Clay. Okay. Um, I grew up in Connecticut, a long way from Texas, back in the 1960s, and we were out in kind of a rural area, so... Um, I spent a lot of time in the woods with my cousins and my buddies, and we knew a little bit about everything. We did a lot of fishing. Um, I didn't do any hunting. I wasn't into hunting. Um, but I knew the birds. I knew the critters. I kept snakes and, you know, collected things. Um, when I got into photography in, the, uh, in, in high school, um, of course, I, everything I saw I took a picture of. So, again, birds, critters, stuff. Uh, and I actually started uh, doing race car photography, oh. and that's how I got my telephoto lenses and all that and then when I went to college in western New York State um, one of the guys mentioned that he saw a bunch of great blue herons nesting in a big swamp about five miles from campus and I went oh cool great blue herons I'd, I'd seen them in Connecticut but they never nested in Connecticut that was only a northern northern New England thing so I went over there and this was April late April the leaves are just coming out and I had my telephoto lens my 500 millimeter lens and I'm going out in the swamp and here's these herons up on the nest I'm taking pictures and having a wonderful time and wood ducks were in the swamp I got pictures of those and then on the way back to the car there was some uh, little bright colored birds that I kind of knew were warblers but didn't know what they were but I took a bunch of pictures of them and when I got my slides back 
I was hooked because Rochester, New York, South Shore of Lake Ontario is a major, major mega spring birding migration corridor. And I didn't know what these birds were. So when I went home uh, the next weekend, I brought my Roger Tory Peterson field guide back with me and identified those, those warblers that I saw and kind of got hooked on going back out and taking more pictures. And um, that kind of hooked me on birds and photography. Oh, neat. And so I, I, I literally birded for the next four years with my 500 millimeter lens and my Nikon. And all my bird watching friends in the Rochester Birding Association couldn't figure out how can you look through a 500 millimeter lens and identify stuff. I said, well, if I can do a race car at 220 miles an hour, <laughs> I can do a little bird flying by. Um, and that worked really well for quite a while. I actually bought a spotting scope before I owned a binocular, mm. just because a spotting scope gave me that 20 power to 45 power, which my 500 millimeter lens was only 10. Yeah. Um, and the first time I went on a pelagic bird trip on the, in the Atlantic Ocean, my 500 millimeter lens on that boat moving back and forth was not the easiest thing in the world to identify birds with. So I, so I broke down and bought a binocular and all my birding friends were aghast. What's that around your neck? It's not a camera. I said, yeah, I know. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, growing up in, in New England, uh, a fellow that lived down the road not too far from my house was Roger Tory Peterson. Nice. We didn't see him much, but he came out on the Christmas counts. Um, but I got to know a lot of wonderful people started traveling the first time i ever came to texas was actually 1981 uh, a friend and i drove out to california then to arizona then to texas three-week blast in, in the winter and i saw my first california condor and hookbill kite at benson and all kinds of cool stuff um so in the 80s i was mostly a bird bum um i i, I was still doing a little bit of the race car photography but i was doing a lot of bird photography leading tours uh doing slideshows things like that um the end of the and, and then I started doing banding, hawk banding. So I, I hawk banded for spring and fall and, and spring in Rochester, New York, and fall in Connecticut. So I got to meet people like uh, Pete Dunn down at Cape May and Bill Clark and, and stuff like that. Um, the end of the 80s, I fell in love and got married, uh, had kids, uh, had, a, had a career for a while. And then in 1999, I'll probably tell the story about Swarovski Optic a little later, but I started working for Swarovski Optic as their, basically back then I was just their birder. Um, and uh, since then, it's almost, uh, this when I finish this year, it'll be my 25th year, and, and I'm a naturalist market manager, which means I do bird watching festivals, um, do a lot of training, uh, lead a couple tours every once in a while, answer a lot of phone calls, uh, help out with, with uh, uh, optics questions and camera questions and things like that. And radio shows like this one. This is cool, yeah, yeah. I love this studio. This is really Isn't neat. Isn't it pretty? Yeah, yeah. it's nice. Yeah. Um, so you, you, you used a phrase that our, our young listeners maybe won't know what a slideshow is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so 35 millimeter cameras, you put this stuff in there called film, <laughs> and you had 36 shots to take, and then you had to rewind the film and load another one in, and you could choose either black and white or color. And in color, you chose, if you wanted slides, it came out this little clear thing that you stuck into a projector and it put a picture up on the wall. So yeah, um, I had I shot more rolls of slide film and black and white film than I care to count. I do not miss film days. I am totally a digital guy. Was digital right when it first started, and, and I'm uh, totally enamored with it. And now what we can do with our cameras is absolutely wonderful. And don't even get me started on what we can do with the phones. Yeah, that's right, uh, <laughs> right. And instantaneous with the cameras now. You don't have to wait till you send it off to Kodak to have it processed. And, and yes. wait two weeks for it to get back, and the whole time you're, you're chewing at the bit, just waiting for it to come back, and 
and then you find out that you set the wrong ISO <laughs> speed ASA back yeah. then, and, and they all came out black or all came out washed yeah, out. Yeah, right. totally. Um, and the big deal, really, the, the biggest thing for me that's changed in birding is back in the 70s and 80s, you saw a rare bird. Most birders did not carry cameras back then. Mm-hmm. Very few did. I was one of the, the outliers in my group that usually ca- always had a camera with me. Um, but back then, you saw a rare bird, you made notes, and you drew pictures, and you submitted that to your rare records committee. Yeah. And nowadays, if you have a rare bird and you don't have a photograph, yeah, yeah it gets uh, just filed yeah. off on a side, like, you know, okay, unconfirmed sighting. Um, and now that eBird is there, you have your records, but also they would really like you to get their pictures yeah. and also sound clips. So right. birding has changed a bunch for it the sure better. Has. For the it better. sure has. It sure has. You're listening to Bird Calls. I'm Cliff Shackle for your host. I'm here with Clay Taylor. He's in the studio. Um, he's he's based in Corpus Christi, Texas, so he drove a long way to be with us today. And, and we have a caller on the on the line. We have David from Minden. David, are you there? Yes, I am. What, what do you have tonight? Well, good evening, Cliff and Clay. I am a 25-year resident of North Louisiana, and in that time frame, I've only seen one American bald eagle in this area. It was in Spring Hill. And I now have a job where I travel extensively in Minnesota and Wisconsin for a company that does testing on the railroad, and we parallel the Mississippi River. And I have never seen more American bald eagles in my life yeah. than I have among the Mississippi River nesting in trees and that kind of leads up to the question I have that your your guest mentioned that what has happened to the California condor I've never seen one and I thought they were almost extinct and then something happened with some kind of conservation process but can you tell me what's happened to the California condor yeah totally um, so the very first research project ever on the California condor started in 1961 and the only reason I know that is because a fellow named Fred Sibley was hired to do the job. He was a graduate of Cornell University, and he is the father of David Sibley. And Fred tells some phenomenal stories about condors. In the 60s, there were somewhere around 200 condors left in the world, and they knew nothing about them. And the number was rapidly plummeting because of lead. Um, they were uh, ingesting lead from uh, carcasses they would feed on, and then the lead would concentrate in their bodies, and they die. So by the time I was in uh, California in 1982, there were about 30, I think, 20, 20 or 30 free-flying condors still in the, in the wild, and they were actually capturing them all to try and bring them into the laboratory, breed them, strengthen the bloodlines, and then start to re-release them. And that started, I believe, in the 90s. And now there's uh, some very good, um, stable California condor populations throughout California. They're in the Grand Canyon. Um, they're actually making their way up into Northern California. So the, the reintroduction process seems to be working pretty well. Um, there are fossil records of California condors all the way into Florida from the uh, pre uh, or from the Ice Age days. But um, you know, in, in recorded history, they've only been California and Arizona and, and those areas. So don't know if we'll ever get to see one in Texas, but you never know. And, and Clay, did you mention why the condor has declined? Well, it was it was primarily humans, and it was primarily lead poisoning from eating animals that had been shot 
and taking the eating the lead bullets and the lead was concentrating in the bodies and eventually it was affecting their nervous systems and they were dying so it wasn't as if we were killing them on purpose they were dying in in kind of as a secondary because they feed on carcasses so 10,000 years ago they were feeding on grizzly bear kills in the central valley of california um and then when it was um you know dead dead deer or, or gut piles from hunters they were eating that and ingesting the, the the bullet fragments yeah well that was a great answer clay david did you catch all that yes i did uh, what is the size of a of a california condor relative to an american bald eagle Specifically, the wingspan. So bald eagles, depending on where you're at, the the southern bald eagles are about a five and a half to six foot wingspan. The ones up in Minnesota and Canada are very close to a seven foot wingspan. Condors, eleven feet. Condors are huge. Well, thank you so much. You're welcome. I, I'm glad you're here, Clay, because you nailed that one. <laughs> I, I would have had three words to say. You had plenty. That was very good. I'm going to just sit back and punt punt the ball to you. No, that's okay. Yeah. All right. Well, I've got some more questions for you. And in the meantime, if you, the listener, have questions for us, the number here is 800-552-8502. We're on until 7 o'clock Central Time. And uh, my next question for you, Clay, is... Give us a give us some history about burgers and binoculars, um, ending with what's available today. Okay, so bird watching. I mean, we're bird watchers, right? So we watch birds. Um, you can listen to them. You can do some other things. You can photograph them, but primarily we're looking at things, and um, the better we can see it, the more we're going to enjoy it. So virtually, the 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 single important part of, of our bird watching deal is a binocular is something to magnify the, the the bird so we can see it better um you know back in the day audubon bird watched by shooting things and picking them up and identifying them because there was no binoculars back in 1810 um but nowadays we have binoculars so in the in when i started in the, in the 60s as a kid and in the 70s when i got into birding all binoculars were made for basically either marine boating or for hunting um then there was no such thing as a binocular made for bird watching and nobody really defined why or, or what it was just you know we, we used them um we'll get into the types of binoculars in a little bit but um birders have different needs than the hunters did and so because if, if you think about a hunter he's looking for deer he's looking for deer right after sunset or before sunrise so they have to be very efficient at gathering the light um whereas with birding after sunset, our birds have gone to bed. Unless you're an owl person, yeah. you know, you're not looking at, you're not critically looking at birds except in really good lighting. So um, one of the things that um, we figured out with bird watching is that we want something that's compact, you know, because one of the things that bird watchers are really more sensitive about than anything else is size and weight. A, re- a big heavy binocular, they're not going to carry it all day. Um, so they want something that's that's a decent size. But then at that point, it's, what kind of a bird? Uh, and see, I, I, I'm kind of a little bit of an outlier here in that, uh, for me, it makes sense to have a couple different kinds of, of binoculars. I mm. mean, you don't play, play a round of golf with just a five iron. You can, but it's just a round of golf with a five iron. It's, it's not a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. 
But you can have one set of binoculars for going down to Hazel Baysmore Park in, in Corpus Christi to look at the hawk, hawk migration. The hawks are flying by over your head. Another binocular to have to go on the whooping crane boat out of Rockport to go see the whooping cranes. Um, you could have a different binocular for in the woods for the warbler migration. So there are better, better tools for, for given jobs. One binocular can do it all, but, you know, it, it all depends on how dedicated you are to the birding side. So um, around the 1980s, uh, it started to get to the point where there were some really good binoculars out there, but birders were saying, hey, you know, these are for hunters. We want something for birders. And so um, my company, Swarovski Optic, in 1999, came out with the first their first ever binocular, uh, in the 1999, they were celebrating their 50th anniversary. Their first ever binocular that was made for bird watching, and that was called the EL. Mm. Um, and it was, EL stood for ergonomic and lightweight. Um, and it was that, it close focused, so you could do close b butterflies and birds. Um, it had perfect color balance, and it was totally waterproof. And it was actually really good if you're wearing glasses. So there was a lot of little things that went into designing that that nobody had really ever taken taken into consideration before that. Uh, and that kind of changed the market, changed the industry, really, in that we had b binoculars that were for, for more than just everyday use hunting. Right, right, right. Yeah, I, I remember in, in my early days of birding, you had, you know, just a, what, what I'd call today a junker pair of binoculars. Yep. And, and, the, and then the goal was to save your money and get the the Zeiss 10 by 40 BGAs, if you could find a pair, mm -hmm. um, and those were the, you know, like you mentioned, they were they were designed for hunting, um, but the birders figured them out. Oh, yeah. Uh, but that's neat what you said about Swarovski came around and, and, and in 1999 discussed uh, how to, or discovered how to introduce a binocular for, for just bird watchers, yep. and that's great. Yep. You're listening to Bird Calls. I'm Cliff Shackleford. I'm in the studio with Clay Taylor. The number here is 800-552-8502. We have Woody from Lufkin on the line. Hello, Woody. Hey, how you doing? We're doing well. <coughs> Speaking of binoculars, 7 by 50 is what I carry most of the time. Uh, as my dad, I don't remember what my dad had. I grew up with a biologist for a dad. <laughs> and uh, I, lost the, I lost his binoculars uh, in a fire in 2021. Mm. Uh, which was pretty pretty devastating to me because I those I had carried those around for years in the sixties. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I recently bought a seven by fifty just so I'd have a good general purpose. But my question is anything to do with binoculars. It has to do with buzzards. Okay. And I live next to one oh three. Ninety nine percent of the time there's not any dead animals anywhere. And yet I have three buzzards that roost in one side of my sycamore tree, when I had the house fire, it killed some limbs way up high. Yeah. And these guys sat in the uh, the bare limbs. And it's just kind of, you know, I have animals, cats, kittens. You know, I don't want them to attack them. Yeah. But uh, I just don't understand why they like to hang out in a bear, on bare branches. Right. It really doesn't have any carrion to speak of well he he's a the buzzard you know we're talking about vultures and there's two species black vulture right. and turkey vulture and they're right. like a jumbo jet so that the the bare branch is a clean easy landing <laughs> there's not leaves and little limbs in the way so they're looking oh. for that and, and they probably have a full belly so what you're seeing are them loafing they're they're wasting the rest of the day because they've probably eaten something 
somewhere else on roadkill or gut pile or something else that you didn't witness and they love that tree that open limb that makes it easy to fly in and out of higher is better when you're a big bird like that um, you, you don't want to get down on the ground unless you absolutely have to like when you're eating but when you're loafing that's why they're on cell towers they're on rooftops and they're on your sycamore limbs because they like that uh, to be high it's easier to get back aloft and and the missing piece to me was the lack of leaves i can see how that would be a big uh deal for a big bird like that so yeah they they birds don't like crashing through limbs and leaves that that messes up their feathers you know the feathers don't work when they're messed up the feathers don't uh operate correctly and they're and feathers are pretty fragile and they can break and wear down so you you don't want to crash through limbs and leaves and while we're talking, I'm watching a mockingbird climbing around on another dead branch. <laughs> oh. And, and the dead branch, Woody, is easy for you, the observer, to see these birds. Oh, yeah. There are a lot of birds in those leafy limbs out there that you're not seeing because they're covered up with, with leaves and they're hidden. So the, right. the Woody the, the, the Woody looking at the Woody limb makes it easier for Woody to see the bird. <laughs> Woody the woodpecker. Is that, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. All right, Woody. Well, thanks for the call. Appreciate it. You're listening to Bird Calls. I'm Cliff Shackleford. I'm here with Clay Taylor. We're talking about optics. We're talking about birds. Anything you want to talk about, we have Cecil from Alto, Texas on the line. Cecil, are you with us? Yes, I am. Okay, go ahead. Yes, Cliff. I have a question for you or Clay either. Uh, I live in Alto, as I mentioned, and uh, I'm very rural, red dirt roads, and... uh, what are the birds I'm seeing in the evening uh, before dark and through the night? If you drive with your lights on after dark, they have uh, extremely red, red eyes. Uh-huh. And they're a fair-sized bird. Yeah, those are those are Chuckwill's widows. I thought that's yep. what they were. And, and most East Texans and even people in Louisiana and the South, they think they have whippoorwills because they've heard about whippoorwills and writings by all kinds of uh, past writers and poets but we're in the south we have the chuck wills widow so that's that's what you're flushing off the roadside there well that's what i was suspect of because i can hear them at night very clearly yeah the chuck wills widow and uh, like i said when you drive around if it's not total dark yet you'll see them in a flush off the road and yeah. in the dark you'll see them in the headlights with their red eye right 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 okay and, well that's... yeah okay well very good thanks for the call cecil thanks for verifying yeah thank you um, this is bird calls the number here is 800-552-8502 we're almost halfway done with the show if you've got questions for clay about optics or questions about birds for either one of us be sure and dial that number 800-552-8502 all right, Clay, I've got some more questions for you. And this is a this is a just a big general or a short question with a lot of answer. <laughs> uh, can you go over binoculars 101? Binoculars 101, yeah. absolutely. Okay. So, all binoculars, when you pick them up and you look at them somewhere on there, it gives you a number times another number. So, in the case of 8 by 42, and the next one is going to be a 10 by 50. Uh, or actually, a fellow earlier said he had a 7 by 50. Um, all binoculars follow this format, 
And it's very simple. If you don't remember anything else about this phone call, remember how big times how bright. Because the size of that number is going to tell you, first off, how big it's going to make the bird. Eight times bigger than your eye sees it. Ten times bigger than your eye sees it. You used to have a 12 by 50 binocular, 12 times bigger. Obviously, we want the bird to be bigger, so more magnification is good. But it also magnifies your jiggles. So if you're not stable, if you're on a moving boat, if you're in a car, it's harder to see with the high power than it is the low power. That's why the gentleman earlier uh, had a ten, uh, 7 by 50. That's, that's what was called the marine binocular because it was low power to, to compensate for boat motion. But it was also very bright. The second number is how bright the picture, how big mm -hmm. times how bright. And that gave him a bright image so he can look through, if you're, in, if you're in a boat, look through the fog and look through the rain to go find a channel marker or something like that. So that second number is actually the physical measurement, the size of the opening. So my 8 by 42 is 42 millimeters across. His 7 by 50 was 50 millimeters across. Brighter is better. But since you've got bigger lenses, you also have a bigger, heavier binocular. Mm -hmm. And circle back around to what I said a little earlier, birders like smaller and lighter. Uh, when I used to work at a store, people would walk into the binocular case and point to the littlest binocular in the case and say, show me that one. Yeah. And I'll show you that one, but it's not as bright. It's actually harder to hold steady because it's so lightweight. It's a little floaty thing, whereas it's better to have something that holds, you can grip more firmly in your hand and be more stable with. So how big times how bright, neither one of those is the next number, which is the field of view, which is how wide. So some, some uh, manufacturers will put how wide on their thing. They'll say either uh, 330 feet at 1,000 yards wide or maybe uh, 6.3 degrees. Usually people aren't buying a binocular because of field of view. They're buying it because of the how big or the how bright. Um, you can get into a whole bunch of other things. Um, I'm, I, I don't wear glasses for out, in the, out in, the, in the real world. I'm wearing them in here in the studio so I can see my notes. But um, if you have to wear glasses outside, you want to look at something called eye relief on a binocular. And if you're wearing glasses, look for eye relief of at least 15 millimeters. So that way you can roll the cups in and still wear your glasses and put the binocular up. Because here's the important part. If you have an astigmatism, the binocular cannot correct for that. You must have your eyeglasses on there to correct for the astigmatism. If you're just far-sighted or near-sighted, you can adjust the focusing on your on your focus wheel, and that'll be okay. But if you have an astigmatism, um, so like I have a minor astigmatism now in my left eye, my eye doctor says, and, and barely one in my right eye, not a big deal when I'm birding just you know with my binoculars, but when I tried to do stargazing with my binoculars, all of a sudden the stars weren't points anymore. They were little flares yeah. because of my astigmatism. I went in and got my glasses, put them on, put the binoculars up, and the stars were now points. Uh, so you, you definitely uh -huh. need to think about that. It used to be, uh, like I said, before, before Swarovski Optic made that, that EL binocular for birders, eye relief was not a big deal for binocular manufacturers. It is now. So if you do wear glasses, there's a, there's a binocular out there, whether it's one of ours or somebody else's, that you can wear with the glasses on and now get the best possible vision because your eye doctor has made the glasses to correct your vision and now you can use all the, all the sharpness and all the brightness from that binocular. Great. Eight, eight by 50. So let's talk about that again. So the eight is... How big. How big. So that bird is eight times larger than with the naked eye. Correct. And then the 50, that's the, the bottom tube, how broad or how big it is. Correct. And that you want the, the broader, the better when you want more light. So if you're birding in a forest or you go to the tropics a lot or you're birding at dusk, you want that bigger number to 
let in more light. The bigger the hole, the more light goes through, right. the brighter the picture is going to be. Now, you go down to the beach and it's a bright sunny day, your eye closes down. Yeah. So now that 8x50 and that 8x42 are going to look exactly the same because your eye is now limiting the amount of light that comes in. So you can balance it out. And that's, that's why I talked about earlier, there are binoculars that are optimized for something some type of viewing other than than uh than, than a different one yeah so you could you could literally have two or three binoculars and say today we're going into the woods i'm going to take this pair because it's better i've got a wider field of view and i've got a lot of light gathering whereas tomorrow we're going to go to the hawk watch and watch the hawks going by at half a mile over our head so i want the higher power yeah um and and but that that's totally up to the user and and how dedicated you are to your to the hobby right another thing to think about you know in the old days the binoculars came out with this skinny gnarly little uh, <laughs> strap yep and it dug in your neck and you're you're you know after two hours you're like this is crazy it, it, it was a simple fix a, a wide strap yep and 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 what do you, what are your recommendations you see those other ones those uh Harness straps too. Um, why don't you tell people about the differences so there? So the, the the harness is also called bino suspenders, and usually it's a fairly wide strap, and it's usually stretchy. They're fantastic. Um, we're it's funny because we're we're Swarovski Optic is made in in Austria, so it's a European brand. But here in the U.S., we were selling thousands of bino suspenders that we were having manufactured with our with our logo on it, and um, because the hunters and the birders all loved them because it, it allows you to number one takes the weight off of your neck puts the weight on your shoulders it's stringy it's springy so if you're walking it, it, it balances the, the shock out and all that stuff um, I don't use them a lot myself except for my really big my 8x56 yeah. binoculars because of the weight um, so after a while Swarovski Austria said hey why are you selling these things and they said well we sell lots of them and they said how much and we told them they went oh now we're gonna sell this start making those things too um, so yeah um, Bino suspenders are, are really, really good. Yeah. The only tricky part is is maybe g taking them on and off if, if, you, if you're, but now they have them with little quick disconnects. So the straps stay around your body and you can just disconnect the yeah. binocular and take them off and hand it to somebody else or nice. something like that. So yeah, uh, I, I, I do use them, not all the time, but uh, for, for a lot of people, especially if you have neck problems or back problems, uh, and, and actually with the stretchy uh, uh, straps, you can use that to pull down against you so it helps for a little stability. If you tighten them up, um, you can, when right. you jam them up against your face, it, it gives you a little more right. stability. S simple things like that. Another thing, I, I was always ridiculed in college because I wore a collared shirt all the time when I went birding. I still do <laughs> because T-shirts, that strap, no matter how comfy it is, is digging into your neck. Yes. And for me, I love wearing a collared shirt and putting that strap, even the wide strap around that collared uh, shirt. So yep. that's you, you and tip. Joel Simon. Yes, yeah. absolutely. <laughs> You're listening to Bird Calls. The number here is 800-552-8502. We have Sonny from Lufkin on the line. Hello, Sonny. Hi, how are you? We're good. How are you doing? I'm good. Um, I have two questions. The first is I um, have several uh, nest boxes in my backyard. Okay. And um, I recently got to watch Chickadee, Sledge, and then like six weeks after that, some Eastern Bluebird Sledge. Different boxes? Yes. Okay. And my question is, I would love to watch them. And what kind of camera setup would be the best to sit like to have a setup inside the nest box. 
Oh, like a like a hidden camera, there, there paper are, camera. Yeah, there are Nest cams. Yeah. Um, you're going to have to go Google search for Nest Cam or Nest cameras. Okay. Um, I don't know the any particular manufacturers. Some of them use infrared. Um, if if it's a, um, a a Nest box, it's there's like almost no light in there. But um, and then you can have it um, Wi-Fi to your to your receiver and be able to watch from inside. Yeah, this Nest cams themselves have become a, a huge thing for nature centers and things like that. You can also do a wired up camera with with a power supply and all that too. Um, I don't like I say I don't know any any specific manufacturers, but um, there's certainly and I would maybe uh, check out Cornell Laboratory. Uh, of ornithology, Cornell Lab, and um, email them and see what they they recommend because they do a lot of the project feeder watch and all that stuff. So they'll they'll be able to uh, probably point you in the right direction. But yeah, there's there's a lot of resources out there for that. Yeah, a lot of those Nest cameras were born out of the security camera business. So <laughs> you're basically buying a security camera, a little tiny hidden thing, you know, like your ring uh, on your front door, those kinds of things. You're basically buying something tiny like that. So if you don't want to even look for Nest cameras, you might, if you have a security camera, a security store nearby, you might even investigate that and put something together or have, have the person help you put something together. It's a good possibility. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Okay. Thank you. I'll okay. look into that Nest cameras. Okay. Um, and then my second question really quick uh-huh. is, are there any bird watching groups in East Texas, close to Lufkin, that get together and oh. go out into the field and bird watch together? You bet there is, and I'm a longtime member of the Piney Woods Audubon Society, and okay. we've been around since the late 60s, and we get together during the, the school year. We get together probably, I think, eight times and for for meetings a couple of those are potluck dinners where we get around and chat and then there's usually a a monthly field trip so you need to look up the piney woods audubon society and you can google that and uh and 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 connect with us that way sunny okay piney woods audubon society yep. sounds and, great thank you yep and audubon is a-u-d-u-b-o-n okay perfect thank you so great. much. great thanks sunny thank you all right bye-bye you're listening to Bird Calls. I'm Cliff Shackelford, your host. I'm in the studio with Clay Taylor with Swarovski Optics. We're talking about birds and binoculars and all kinds of stuff. And if you have a question for either of us, the phone number here is 800-552-8502. So, Clay, describe high-end binoculars and why they're worth it. <laughs> okay. So when I'm leading a field trip, bird walk, whatever, and I'm pointing out things and people are looking at birds and going, ooh and ah, and somebody is struggling. Um, and they pick the binocular up to their face and put it back down and pick it up and put it back down, pick it up and put it back down. I say, well, let me look at your binocular for a second. And probably at some point that thing has been dropped or kicked around and, and the lenses are not pointed in the same direction anymore. And unless you're a chameleon where you can move your eyes independently of each other, you need a <laughs> binocular that's what's called collimated. So for a lot of people, they don't realize it because they've never looked through a properly collimated good binocular. So I'll hand them mine and they go, oh my goodness, I didn't know these could do that. Yeah. Um, so number one is check out what you have for a binocular and see if it's in need of repair. Um, getting repairs might be interesting depending on what the brand is and how old it is. 
Um, but the other scenario is you're standing next to somebody on a field trip and they're looking at a common yellow throat in the, in, the, in the reeds there. And you can say, yeah, I can see that's a female and it's got a little bit of much smudge by the face and it got a little, you're describing details and they're looking at you like, what? Yeah, what are you talking about? They don't see any of yeah. that. Um, and just like everything else in this world is good, better, and best. Yeah. And uh, the, the inexpensive binoculars, which I'll call anywhere from 50 bucks on up to $200, are usually okay. Sh- fairly sharp in the centers, not really sharp on the edges. The problem there is, is material-wise, they're very flimsy. And you, like I say, you drop them once, you get them wet, and they're, and they're toast. They're, they're done. Um, spend a little more money, you're going to get maybe a little better optics, but you're also going to get more rugged. Um, at about $500 and on up, you start to add things like waterproof. Waterproof is nice because you can be out in the rain uh, and, and worry, not worry about it. Um, then once you get up to over $1,000 and higher, now the image starts to get really, really good. Um, a quick story. Um, years ago, there was a fellow from Utah, um, Robert Mortensen, started a birding blog called Birding is Fun. He was a new birder, and he, he just loved it, and he was doing a really cool blog. And he came out east. He was, a, he was from Salt Lake City. And he came out east for the first time to the Midwest Birding Symposium in Ohio. And uh, I met him and, and, and knew him because of the blog and all that stuff. And so he went on a field trip that we sponsored. And I said, okay, Robert, first thing is I'm going to take away your Eagle Optics Rangers and I'm going to give you my Swarovski EL. And he goes, oh, okay. And so we went birding. And the, the fun thing was, you know, uh, he, was, he was a newbie to the east. So I think on that, on that field trip alone in two hours, he got like 27 life birds. Uh-huh. And the entire group was finding birds for Robert. It was a blast. Yeah. You know, because birders love to give, love to share. So by the time we got back to the, to, the, to the parking lot, Robert's got this huge smile on his face. He's got all these life birds. And I said, okay, now the bad news. You've got to give me my binoculars back. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, okay, here. And, and then, he, then he, I gave him back his eagles, and he looked through them, and he went, Oh, <laughs> I knew there was a real good reason why you guys love Swarovskis so much. And, he's, he's a, and his, his binoculars are perfectly fine. It's just that he got used to using the really good ones. And it's, it's everything. It's brightness. It's sharpness. It's field of view. It's ease of use. It's, it's stable. It's the whole shebang. Yeah. So now there's, there's Swarovski optic. There's Leica and there's Zeiss. They're top, all three top binoculars. And kind of like Mercedes, Audi, and BMW. They're all wonderful cars. Yeah. And you're not going to go wrong buying any one of them, but which one do you spend $100,000 on? Yeah. And you'd go nuts. they got leather seats. they got great stereos. And us crazy Americans, sometimes it's something as stupid as the cup holders that make you buy a $100,000 car. Yeah. Well, we think, we like to say at Swarovski Optic, we have better cup holders. We've got uh-huh. more little details that yeah. we took care of because we were the first ones to design a binocular for birders. And we've keep on doing that. Our brand new models are amazing. Um, and, you know, it's, that's, that's part of the deal. So the bottom line with all binoculars is Fred may have that and Ethel may have that and Joe may have that. And you look at all theirs, but you need to see what works for you. And uh, we, we talked about this a little before we got on, on the air, you know, where to go find them. And um, bird festivals, I mean, there are little bird festivals, there's big bird festivals. Rio Grande Valley Bird Festival in Texas in, in November is, is the biggie. Um, but go to a festival and usually there's, there's a dealer there selling or there's uh, manufacturers like Swarovski, they're showing them. 
Um, when, when I do bird festivals, we actually loan binoculars out so you can take one out on a field trip and bring it back and go, okay, that was the 8x42, show me the 10x32 or whatever. And, and if over a couple of days, you can make real on-the-ground comparisons um, to see what you like because what's good for you may not be particularly good for Fred or Ethel or Joe. Yeah, I'm a big guy. I can handle the 12 by 50s you mentioned yep. earlier, but you wouldn't wish that on, you know, a 110 pound uh, young young lady. That would just weigh them down, probably. Probably not, yeah. but you never know because that image is so good. Actually, there's a lady in in the in the, uh, Rockport, uh, Texas area that has a 12 by 50, oh. and she's probably five foot three. All right. Um, but she loves them to death. She actually traded in her eight and a half by 42s for the 12 by 50s and won't go anywhere yeah. without them. So yeah. it's it's a matter of what's what makes sense to you. Yeah. So go go on field trips. The last caller, Sonny, asked about uh, her nearest Audubon Society. Go on a field trip, and hopefully there's five or more people, and, and start asking, hey, can I switch binoculars with you for a few minutes? And try them out that way, and take notes. Write down, yep. or take take your cell phone and take pictures uh, of the mo- make and model of the ones you like. But that's a that's a good way to do it. Don't just maybe don't just go out and buy a car without test driving it. And same thing with binoculars. Absolutely not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, locally, well, in, in East Texas anyway, in Houston is Land, Sea, and Sky, uh, which is a wonderful dealer. They're actually a big astronomy dealer, but they've got bird watchers on staff, and they carry all the binoculars by all the manufacturers. So if you were to have a, have a little, little extra time in Houston, uh, you can go down and see them at the store, or but they do also at High Island during, during migration, uh, and they actually show up at many of the bird festivals in, in Texas. Um, so they'll be in, in uh, Rockport for the Hummerbird Festival, and uh, Corpus Christi for the hawk, hawk celebration and all that. So there's, there's, there's plenty of opportunities to get out. And, and you can find a retailer, a Cabela's or a Bass Pro Shop. We'll probably have some models, but maybe not all. Yeah. So, And, and then the, the one you mentioned in Houston, they also do repairs too. So Yes. So you, w- you wouldn't send your crappy Tascos that you bought in 1968 down there. But, you know, if you've got a high-end pair um, that's – 10 or 20 years old that you've set up because something's wrong with it that that might be your best bet is to send them in contact them first yep. see, see what they can do and, and, and maybe uh, get your old pair resurrected yeah and they do have a, a the limited ability to machine parts if there's no pieces available so yeah uh, actually a true story my original binocular from 1977 was a, um, a Bushnell Bushnell custom which was back in the back in the day a $300 binocular um, it went off the roof of a car once, cracked the prisms. They were in pretty bad shape. So a few years ago, I went online and found another one and bought it and took mine and the, and the other one back to uh, Lancy and Sky, and they disassembled the two of them and took all the nice lenses and put them back in my binocular case, which was all not, you know beat up and torn up, and I could remember where this was. That you knew one. the difference. Yeah, so, yeah. so now, I, now I have a, a resurrected binocular, uh, courtesy of Lancy and Sky. And you, you couldn't just accept the new pair, the new no. used pair. That's no, good. Yeah. no. I, you, I, you I, I got a rat rod binocular. That's right. You, you had that 65 Ford Mustang, and you bought the engine, and you put it back in. You took it out of another car yep. and put it in your yep. I get it. Yep. I get it. Cool. That's awesome. You're listening to Bird Calls. I'm Cliff Shackleford. I'm here with Clay Taylor. The phone number here is 800-552-8502. So, Clay, explain the need for a spotting scope and a little bit about digiscoping. Okay. So here I am back in the 70s with my 500-millimeter lens, which is 
back then with film, it was 10 power, just like my 10 power binocular, or just like a 10 power binocular. But, you know, way down across this field, half mile away, there's a hawk perched up on a tree, and it's an overcast day, and a hawk is a silhouette, and it's like, okay, it's a hawk. I don't know what it is. Um, those that had spotting scopes, you look through the spotting scope, and oh, yeah, look at that. It's a red-tailed hawk. Uh, I really got into spotting scopes. That was the first thing I purchased, actually, be, when I became a birder, was it was a Bushnell Space Master, and um, I took it everywhere and used it like crazy. You could you could literally put the uh, film camera on the Space Master, but the pain in the neck, it was a pain in the neck to put it all together, and again, you had to wait two weeks to get your film back to find out if you got any good pictures. Um, but I've always been a scope guy. I love scoping. I love looking long distance and scanning mud flats in the Gulf of Mexico and whatever. And I literally take the scope into the into the woods too because I look at butterflies. I look at birds up in the trees. Look at nests. To me, a scope is is invaluable. Um, you do have to have a tripod because sp where binoculars are eight, ten, maybe twelve power. Most good spotting scopes start at about twenty power and go on up to sixty and even seventy. So they magnify like crazy, but then the, the shakes become horrendous. Yeah. Some people mount a spotting scope on a, on a little, uh, like a gun stock, yeah. and put it up. To, I don't know how they can do that. It is they're, tough. They're it's, better than me. Yeah, um, it's shake, very shaky. Yes. So I take a tripod. The nice thing is carbon fiber tripods nowadays are reasonably ex inexpensive, and they're, number one, they're lighter, so you can carry them. But number two, they dampen vibrations better which is really good when you've got a windy day and you're trying to see that shorebird out on the mud flat at 60 power uh, or, or figure out which red tail, which hawk that is that a red tail or a red shoulder at a mile and a half away. Yeah. Um, so tripod and scope are, are their necessity. But to me, if you were to tell me tomorrow I can go birding and I can bring either a scope or a, can or a binocular, but not both, I take the scope. I'm wow. a scope guy. Um, but now since digital came out, all of a sudden we have a, a, a new wonderful option because um, you can take a, sp a camera or even a cell phone, hold it up to the eyepiece of the scope and get the picture of whatever the scope sees. So phone scoping, as you will, or digiscoping, digital camera on a scope, has become a huge thing. And especially nowadays where, like I said, if you have an eBird list and you, and you have something rare, the, the, the compiler, the, the uh, verifier wants to know, you know, did you really see that Connecticut warbler? Well, yeah, here's a picture I took through yeah. my spotting scope. So you can do that, which is really wonderful. Um, and and the, the cameras on the phones now are so amazingly yeah. good. It takes a little practice. It takes a little practice. Uh, there are a lot of adapters out there now that clamp onto the phone body and allow you to plunk it right on the scope eyepiece so you don't have to hold it there. Um, Swarovski has one. There's Phone Scope is a company out of Utah that makes them. There's a bunch of them out there. Um, I use my digital SLR on the scope all the time. I just got came back from from Costa Rica uh, two weeks ago and I shot about five thousand pictures oh, through geez. my scope of all kinds of cool stuff, toucans and trogons and all kinds of junk. Who get, who has to go through all uh, this? That's you me. do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's why it's nice to have a, t a couple of terabyte hard drives. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so with the with the scoping and the phones, um, just just like just like the, with the binoculars, size and weight. The bigger the scope, the more light it lets in. The brighter the picture, the sharper the picture, but also the more weight you have to carry. So there's a trade-off there. Um, and pricing, you can start it from good scopes. Start at about 500. There's some cheap ones out there, but they get a little ugly when you start to yeah. zoom it up. Um, $500 and on up, um, and again, the more you spend, the better the image, the more rugged it is, the waterproof, the whole shebang. Yeah. So, um, you know, many, many years ago, Pete Dunn from New Jersey Audubon said, 
the more you spend on your optics, spend as much as you possibly can on your optics because it will pay immediate dividends. Yeah. So whatever your budget is, max it out because that will give you the best possible look. Yeah, and you mentioned the high-end binoculars a little while ago, and I don't care what your age is, that could be the last pair of binoculars you need and that you'll buy. Yep. It, they'll, they'll keep with you for decades. Sure, so, absolutely. So that's something to think about. It's not like, you know, your car is going to get beat up in 15, 17 years. Yep. You're going to have to get a new one, not, not with the binoculars, if, if you take care of them. Yep. So. Um, I mean, one of the, 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 the binoculars that kind of got Swarovski optic raised into the consciousness of birders before the, the EL came out was called the SLC. Um, and we came out with those in 1993. We're still repairing those back in back in Rhode Island at our headquarters. And you know, people use them up, beat them up, send them in. We refurb them and come back, and they look like brand new. And literally, you can sell a, a nice SLC for double what it costs brand new. Oh, you wow. can sell it. You can sell it outright. There, it's you know, they they hold. High-end stuff holds value very, very well. And they're all warrantied when you send them back in? Well, it depends on the warranty. Um, so with Swarovski Optic, we have lifetime guarantee on the lenses and 10 years on the mechanicals. Yeah. So uh, you have 10 years for the focusing to get bad or something like that, and we'll still fix it. Yeah. Um, if it loses the, the nitrogen uh, out of it for the waterproofness, we can we can replace the seals and do that. So yeah. a lot of stuff is, is easily maintainable. Um, it's <laughs> you would think that hunters are really hard on their products uh, birders are worse because uh -huh. we're birding with it every day yeah, yeah. you know every day you're you're going out and you're bringing your binocular with you and there's cumulative bumps and bangs and dirt and crud yeah. and, and mayonnaise from your sandwich falling on it and yeah. all that stuff so it's nice to have a little bit of maintenance every three four five years send it in for a a refurb and a clean and check yeah. and 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 that that gets you going for the next couple of years yeah all right well, we've got a caller on the line. We've got Kathy from Nacogdoches. Kathy, are you with us? Yes. Can you hear me, Cliff? Yes. Go ahead. Okay. So uh, I'm really excited about this show. It's perfect timing. I have a big birthday coming up, Ooh. and I had decided exactly what I wanted. It was the EL42s. Oh. No doubt about it. Getting ready to hit order, and I saw that the close focus range had changed to 10 Yep. Feet. <laughs> so, the question, and that was like a, a, a deal breaker for me. Okay. And the NL was just a little bit more than what I wanted to spend. So, can you comment on that? I do a lot of, uh, okay, I've, I've got the Ranger uh, guy you were talking about that had the Ranger Eagle yep. Optic 842s, and I've had them for, oh, 15 years. And... Uh, their close focus is about five feet, and yep. I do uh, I check bur you know butterflies, wildflowers, hummingbirds on the front porch and stuff. So could you comment? I measured out in the living room what ten feet would be, yep. and, I, and I just wasn't comfortable with that. You want to comment on what if, if I come up with a butterfly? <laughs> so that that's always my first question. I do tons of butterflies. Um, I'm a butterfly guy almost as much as birds. When we came out with the NL Pures at $3,000, which scared to death out of us until everybody on the planet wanted to buy them yesterday, um, the ELs were about $2,500, so that was a $500 price difference. We wanted to drop the price of the ELs to make it a little, give it, give another price choice. So the only way to do that was to actually change the close focus setting, if you will. Uh, and it was internal and, and gearing and all that junk. Um, for most birders, I, I, yeah, for most birders, I say if, if you're not doing butterflies and birds, 10 feet, how often do you actually 
critically study birds less than 10 feet. You're doing butterflies, I get it. Um, you could try and find a pair of older ELs. They're still around. Uh, and you can yeah, actually... I've been looking. Yeah. yeah. Been looking and what, what do those get to five, six feet? Uh, it was six and a half, yes. Six and a half. Yep. Yeah, and the NL pures do go down to six feet, but they are. I, I, I will say that the image quality on the pures just blows the blows the ELs away. It's it's quite amazing. So, um, you know, if if you're a, a, get a couple of family members to chip in or something for your birthday, um, but yeah, um, right now with with the, uh, the the ELs, that that's it. Ten feet is it, unless you can find a pair that was made before the summer of twenty one, because that's when the uh, the close focus changed. So, Kathy, you've got a little shopping to do. Oh, I've been online, and that was, he answered my other question. Okay. It's like, I live in Nacogdoches. Okay. So, how, how do you go hold, you know, these three, four, five different binoculars? Yeah. So previously, I'd held up a pair of binoculars, knew that's what I wanted, and I got them, and I couldn't really see out of them. So right, I right. to hold them up, but, like, where do, do I go to some store and just order ten thousand dollars worth of binoculars <laughs> yeah sent to the house and then return them or you know how do you besides going to the rio grande or the or the hummingbird festival yeah come, come to audubon meeting that i mentioned earlier piney woods audubon and we'll we'll uh, set you up go to on, on one of our field trips kathy so thanks for the call kathy and we're going to move into our uh conservation tip and uh we're running out of time here. And the conservation tip is turn me off. Is your house glowing day and night? Do you have lights, fans, TVs, computers, and other electrical gadgets turned on in rooms at home and office when no one is around? Save some money and conserve energy by turning off those electrical items, especially during our triple-digit temperatures in the summer. Those extra items multiplied by 337 million Americans are putting unnecessary pressure on the electric grid. Instead, turn them off. Use those dollars for something fun, like a new pair of binoculars or a bird bath. During the May 2015 episode of this show, the conservation tip discussed how we can help darken the night skies by turning off or dimming lights in our home office and outdoors. Migratory birds flying at night often head towards these lights especially during inclement weather and can become disoriented and killed if they hit windows, towers with guy wires, buildings, and other structures. If you're not using it, turn it off day and night. Do it for the birds. So this concludes this evening's episode. You've been listening to Bird Calls with me, Cliff Shackle, Ford resident ornithologist here at Red River Radio, and our guest Clay Taylor with Swarovski Optic. Thanks for joining us, Clay. This, this show has been made possible in part by the Community Foundation of North Louisiana. Tonight's episode was assisted by Kiara Lafitte, and there were several volunteers operating the phone bank. Tonight's sound file of a gray catbird call note was recorded by Ian Davies, and the song was recorded by Russ Y, and both can be found at the website xenocanto.org. The photo we used for the catbird on the Bird Calls webpage was snapped by James Childress. This show will be available soon as a podcast on our website at redriverradio.org. If you have a photo or a sound clip of a bird that you'd like me to identify, you can send an email to redriverradiomail at gmail.com. Be sure to join us for the next episode of Bird Calls next month, 6 p.m. Tuesday, August 15th, one week later than normal. And remember, do it for the birds.